It's Law Talk with BJ, the podcast where trial attorney and legal commentator BJ Bernstein and her guests discuss the latest issues from around the legal world. BJ is a frequent commentator on television and radio. She's unique in that she not only comments on legal issues, having been lead counsel on numerous high-profile cases of national interest, but her relatable personal style allows the viewer to understand the law behind the headlines and why it's important. Now, here's your host, B.J. Bernstein. Welcome to Law Talk with B.J. Today, we're going to focus on a topic that has been in the news nonstop, and you may be a little tired of it, but I ask you to listen to the podcast because, as what I always try to do, I want to give you more information beyond the headlines. And the headlines, of course, have been focused on the federal prosecution of Manafort um, with regard to his actions during the campaign for President Trump. He was a former campaign manager and was just recently sent to prison for about seven and a half years. And there has been a ton of controversy and discussion about whether that sentence was right, fair, just, and what a regular person would get. And in turn, it leads to a discussion of the differences between the federal system of justice and what the states do, and in particular, the federal sentencing guidelines. And to help me get through this is someone who is extremely experienced, Jamila Hall, a partner at the law firm of Jones Day in Atlanta, Georgia, a former federal prosecutor, a current practicing attorney who has done a lot of work in the federal courts. Um, She is one of the leaders of the Women's White Collar Criminal Defense Association. And she also, though, does court-appointed federal defense work. So she is unique in that she is with a big firm, but her big heart also defends those who can't afford her in that way. And it also gives her a perspective on the entire system, having been on both sides. So welcome, Jamila. Thank you so much, BJ. I'm glad to be here. And there's a lot to talk about. And uh, I noticed some with your Twitter and other things. You had some opinions and thoughts, just like the rest of the world, about what happened recently with regard to um, the former campaign manager for President Trump, Paul Manafort, who um, had federal trials and now face sentencing. And he ha- he was in two courts. Just a quick recap for everyone. He was convicted um, in Virginia, in the East- Eastern District of Virginia, and Judge um, Ellis sentenced him to 47 months. And the sentencing guidelines provided for 19 to 24 years as a possibility, which has obviously caused a lot of discussion. And then he was more recently sentenced by Judge Amy Berman Jackson in Washington, D.C., and that all put together ended up with a a seven-and-a-half-year sentence. And now he's facing state charges in New York. So this all puts into play all these pieces, what, what I was talking about, the state and the federal. So first of all, let's Start with the sentencing guidelines themselves. What are they? And explain this grid, if you can. 
Sure. Uh, BJ, let me start out by saying any of my comments are my own and not affiliated with any organizations that I may or may not be a part of. Lawyer caveats. Uh, I appreciate them. Noted for the record. <laughs> but uh, let's talk about the sentencing guidelines because it's really interesting from both perspectives, having been a federal prosecutor and now a criminal defense attorney. One of the things you hope for is that the sentence that a defendant receives is just and reasonable. On both sides, we're, we're trying to achieve justice. And the sentencing guidelines were enacted um, by Congress to ensure that sentences were meted out equally amongst similarly situated defendants. Prior to 2005, those guidelines were mandatory, meaning that a judge had to follow whatever the guideline range was in imposing a sentence. And many people thought that that was going to ensure that some of the disparities that we saw in sentencing in the prior decades were reduced. Unfortunately, that also made it so that defendants really didn't have an opportunity to argue about the reasonableness of their of their sentence and to have their individual cases considered by judges. It really took the judicial part out of the equation. And so, too, and, that, and the yeah. lawyer part too. Oh, because, that's absolutely right. You know, in terms of advocacy, you know, part of your role as an attorney is to let the judge, you know, judge. I realize what you've heard, but let me tell you about the person. Let me tell you why this happened. There's some other influences, whether mental health, abuse, things that led to it. And instead, there's this chart of numbers, and that was all you had. That was all you had, and um, and and. So in 2005, the Supreme Court said, you know, it's it's not constitutional to force the court uh, to use to use this guideline and not allow the, the courts to have an opportunity to determine the reasonableness of a sentence. And I remember that. Do you remember when Booker came down? It was big. Uh, it was huge. Uh, and Booker being the name of the U.S. Supreme Court case. And yes, lawyers, we get very excited about names of Supreme we Court do. cases. We do. So and Booker so. was definitely a, a a landmark in our in our legal careers. And so what came out of Booker, and what's interesting about it is I think we all thought that it was going to allow us to have uh, more fair sentencings and, and more robust and sort of personalized determinations. Uh, but it also allows the court to consider aggravating, mitigating circumstances, to look at the nature and the circumstances of the offense, to look at the person involved, to look at whether a particular sentence would deter people from actually committing the crime again, whether it would deter the public from in deciding to engage in that crime. And so what you then have is the judges having a wide range of discretion because the guidelines then are only advisory. What happened in the Manafort case uh, is an example of the judge being able to use that discretion to probably give what many have determined to be an inconsistent uh, sentence in comparison with the crimes that Manafort is actually found guilty of. So where you would have had Manafort having a range of 188 to 235 months, he ended up getting um, almost half of that and where he's about to serve about seven years. Now, one thing that's interesting to note there that's very different from the state system is that in the federal system, we don't have early release. There's no parole. Um, and that means that a defendant who's convicted of an offense in federal court, absent a few 
you know, a few caveats, has to serve a, a ma- minimum of 85% of their sentence. So in the state system, you could see a defendant being sentenced to 10 years, but they might only serve five. Sometimes you, they might be 10 to serve two, and then there could be an early release that they're eligible for. But in the federal system, when you are sentenced uh, to 70, seven years, you're going to serve at least 85% of that. Now, Mr. Manafort is up in age, and he allegedly has some health problems. That might be the only thing that allows for him to have a release earlier than that 85% of his sentence. Unless, of course, the gov- the president pardons him. And that's a whole other thing that, that can be another podcast. That could be but, another book. But, BJ, let me just say, yeah. the, the New York State AG's office coming in and indicting Manafort on 16 additional counts in New York State, the state case is not, um, is not available for a pardon by the president. And so even if Manafort was to be pardoned on these two federal cases, he now has to deal with the state case um, as well. So, so it's it's not clear yet what's really going to happen to him. That's correct. Um, you know, it's it's interesting because in some ways, it is. You know, when you see the grid and when you see the numbers, there is something to be said for knowing about how much you're going to serve of what you're given, and that there's some uniformity to it um, in terms of your family, you getting your arms around how much time you're really going to serve. And so those are some of the benefits that probably came from the grid system. But as you pointed out, the other part of it is it really takes out the individual um, and those nuances as to why you and I are different, um, why if I go outside and go to a restaurant, pick five people, and they tell me their life story, you know, each one's going to have an an unusual life event that affects their point of view. Um, Well, one thing that uh, I see as being a difficulty now with the guidelines being advisory only is that there's a perception in white-collar cases, and that's cases involving money, and not violent crimes like you might have your bank robberies or drug deal dealing uh, situations, is there is a perception that for white-collar defendants, prison is not for them. That one day in prison is one day too much, and one day in prison would teach them a lesson that it might take years for a violent offender or drug offender uh, to learn. And for whatever reason that that perception exists, you tend to see judges giving lower sentences, even for higher guideline range cases in white collar cases than you do for drugs and and violent offenses. And so there's some implicit bias in the way that we're giving out, the way that the justice system is giving out sentences for white collar defendants for certain. And in essence, too, a racial bias. Absolutely. If, again, it sounds crazy, but, you know, if it's a white-collar crime, tends to be white defendants. That's right. It, does, I mean, it doesn't have to be. There can be all kinds of people, but there is a large number that compared to the other crimes that are there where minorities are more um, part of the system and arrested. That's right. Um, and so it's ironic that that just because you have the privilege of money and the privilege that comes with your race of being listened to 
um, by law enforcement probably a little bit better. Um, More sympathy because, again, this is why it's important to have all types of people as judges. Um, There's, you know, of late there's been more and more minority um, minorities as judges and women as judges. In the state system. In the state system. In the federal system, it's still a heavily white male group of judges. Yeah. And so with similar life patterns, gone to a good school, parents got you going to a good school. Oh, don't we, we could, that's another podcast oh gosh, about yeah. what, our parent, what parents are doing to get to supposedly the best education for their perfect child. Um, and there's nothing wrong for wanting the best for your child, but there's got to be some realization that the racism is built in and we, it's up to us now to to, to, to break that. And, and, and in trying to make it fair, we're not always making it fair. Well, one thing that's really interesting to note is when I was a federal prosecutor, one of the arguments that we would have for higher sentences on the white-collar cases is that if you give out a sentence, let's say like Mr. Manafort received, people will make that calculation in their head. Well, I'm going to commit 10... million fraud. And if I get caught, perhaps I'll serve three to five years in prison. Some people might decide that that's a risk they're willing to take, meaning that the sentence that they perceive that they could get is low enough that it's worth the risk of committing the offense. And so if you give out a sentence that's too low, you actually are not deterring additional white-collar crime. Now, on the other side, because there are mandatory minimums related to drug offenses. There are additions that defendants can get because of prior criminal history. And we can get into why some people have prior criminal histories that really shouldn't have prior criminal histories. Again, a history of uh, disparities in policing that disproportionately affect people of color. You start to question whether there really is a goal of deterrence on these white-collar cases where judges are, in some cases, giving out really light and lenient sentences. So where do we go? Are there any lessons you think that are already coming out that just the fact that we're even discussing this, you know, in, in the general population, you know, you it's on the front page of the newspaper, which normally the guidelines discussion is not there. It's a subject of editorials and turning on television news at night. It's it's debated in a way that I can't remember in a very long time yeah. um, that that people start to realize that this is what's there and 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 pushing their elective representatives to say, you know, really, you you this system, what does is not necessarily working its best. Well, what I think we've seen in the last year or so is a re-engagement of citizenry where they're understanding that the people that they vote for actually have an impact on the judges that are ultimately appointed to federal court. Um, and, And that is the case. And so we know that because of the composition of the Senate Judiciary Committee, we know that they are going to make the determining factors about which judges are ultimately approved to be on the federal district court. And those are lifetime appointments. Understanding how important that is has now become part of our populace. 
And so people are re-engaged in looking at who they're putting into these roles to be able to make those decisions about the gatekeeping function of who's ultimately going to get on the bench. And it might not be an immediate resolution in terms of completing and diversifying the, the judiciary in the federal sense, but there definitely, I think you'd see, you'd agree, there's definitely a change. Definitely a change. I mean, there there are judges um, from all different walks of life that are being appointed, um, but there's still a lot left from before Yes, where it was predominantly white, predominantly male. That's right. And, you know, if it's a job for life um, and as long as you're lucid, and uh, can still do the job, you can be there. Now, yes, there is something to be said for experience. I'm not going to knock experience. No, we love saying how many years we've been practicing. (laughs) Exactly, (laughs) exactly. But it doesn't mean there's, I I think the hard part is is that guarantee it's for life. That's right. And I realize, again, there was a reason for that because you're less subject to the whims of politics. You're not going to be influenced by having to raise money for campaigns. You know, in the state, every state is different. You know, we're in Georgia, but we're not the only state with mainly elected judges who face um, running it over and over. And that has its different problems for not assuring that we have consistency in the judiciary and that they're at the whims of the voters every time, as opposed to what the Constitution says and the law says and what's fair and just in that situation when it's not popular. Uh-huh. Um, so there, it's there. There are problems on each side, um, and what to do with it. You know, I think you're right. Part of it is having a diversity of folks um, be, being on the bench, um, and there's some more activism that we're seeing on the state side, and so I think New York is really taking this lead of policing the federal system in a way we haven't seen in quite some time. And so where we saw that Mr. Manafort received a sentence that many might consider too lenient, on the the day that he received his second sentence, that's ultimately going to run concurrently with the first, and that means running at the same time, so a total of seven and a half years, New York releases an indictment on 16 additional counts. And those could be found to run consecutively. And so having the state system say, well, we're going to see what the feds are doing, and then we'll make a decision on the back end as to whether we think that that's reasonable or not, because they are listening to the populace. Uh, That's an interesting move that that I haven't seen in several years. Right, right. But it also has a flip side of it looking at clients of how many times are you going to be tried for, for conduct same. or very similar conduct? Yes. And is that, is that fair either? Right. That right now, you know, it's, it may be happening to somebody who is let you, you're not sympathetic to, but what if that happens to someone else, not on something that has national attention, and then you're facing, you know, three different jury trials with different jurisdictions because everybody wants to get you, even for something that's not the thing that caused public um, outcry about the person. I agree that that's a <laughs> and real that's issue. A, that, that, that's a danger. Yeah. The one, one thing that I, that I do note is that in this particular case that we're talking about, 
so many offenses have been alleged to have been committed that there really isn't the double jeopardy fear that, that you and I are, are discussing, that we would be afraid for our clients. But let's say we have a, a bank fraud case and there are 10 transactions that the federal government decides to do. But then the state has six more transactions. No, we're going to fight that if the state decides after afterwards that there hasn't been some sub- sufficient resolution on the federal side. But where you have an individual that is committing so many different offenses over such a lengthy period of time. That's, you know, that's, that's distinguishing a, that's a distinguishing in this particular factor. case. Yeah. But it's but again, I'm glad you're pointing this out, because from watching the news for a few minutes or even reading the paper, there's all these other layers to it and why it's so complicated. And yet at the same time, we're talking about the federal system when 181 approximately thousand people are imprisoned by the federal system. And yet in our country, it's two point one million people incarcerated. And so. Certainly the federal system is important. Um, it, tar- it, it tends to go after the, quote, bigger um, fish, so That's to speak. Right. Um, but it doesn't, the changes here don't necessarily affect the need for reform across the country that we have 2.1 million people in prison. That's right. And there's such a disparity in the state systems. You could have one case that's in Georgia, you know, let's say you've got an armed robbery in Georgia that can yield 10 to 15 years. That same case in, in New York could have a you know mandatory minimum of 20 years. And so we've got to get to a place where there is some consistency across the states with these cases so you don't have uh, this overwhelming amount of people incarcerated. At the same time, we really need to evaluate what is the purpose of incarceration. We are the most incarcerated country in the world. And we don't see over time a reduction in the amount of violent crime. And that's the crime, those are the crimes that people are really most concerned about because they affect their personal lives and their families. And so if incarcerating people is not reducing violent crime, it's not reducing drugs getting into our communities, then what is the value of it? And is it something that we really need to continue to promote as the mechanism in, in our justice system? That's the real question. Right. And, and it, it ties into this concept of, again, mandatory minimum. It's That's like, right. You know, I remember when I first started practicing law, they weren't really around. Then it started happening. And at that point, I was a prosecutor, I think, still. So I was thinking, yes, of course, this person should get X amount of time for doing this. And then when I switched sides and people were like, how did you do that? I think I shocked. I know I shocked a lot of people because it was so intense in one way. Same here. Um, But then I started talking to people and individuals and finding out the stories and the real life problems that they're dealing with and realized there's a problem with mandatory minimums, too. That's right. You know, that um, there's mental illness. There are people who are abused. There are There is coercion. Um, there are so many, and, and even economic coercion. Yeah. Um, if you have nothing, no, you should not steal. Yes, you should get, get a job. But what if you can't? And out of desperation, you do something. Right. Um, and, you know, and we have lines that we make for, you know, let's example, if there was a, another storm and a flood and someone 
is desperate for food and the store is closed, but they go in and get it, we understand you had nothing else. Yeah. Well, uh, but you stole. But and you if stole. with yeah. minimums, not we don't have mandatory minimums for that. But 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 it shows you how the problem with mandatory minimums can be. Yeah. Even with just the enforcement of regular of certain regular statutes. For example, you know, there there's that woman in in Connecticut who and, and there's several studies that have come out to show that the amount of funding for public education is disproportionately uh disproportionately given out to communities in such a way that communities of color are not receiving equal amounts to communities with, you know, exclusively or majority white families. And there was a woman in, in Connecticut who used the address of her employer to get her son to be able to go to a better school and who was ultimately convicted for stealing uh, the benefits of the state. So because she suffered from getting less resources for the education of her child, her attempt to rectify that ended up with her having a, a criminal history and getting incarcerated. That's looking at that sort of the sociological impact on on these on some of these offenses. And so it's really difficult to think about just looking at the idea of a person stealing from the state system without understanding that underlying story about who they are and what brought them to that situation. Because we do need to, as as a country, still have a moral compass, right? Right, right. And, and what you're saying, too, also, again, extends back to why people need counsel. That's right. Why you have a defense attorney. Yeah. You know, I listen, prosecutors are important. I've had things happen that I needed a prosecutor to advocate um, for. Um, I had an employee steal a bunch of stuff for me. And oh, gosh. I had no I know. I was a young lawyer, and that's a story I was, didn't even know until I was in court with another client, and then she was in court as a defendant. Oh, my goodness. And— I was listening to what's going on, and then I called back to my office, and the prosecutor's like, you better check your books. And I did, oh. and um, she stole a bunch of money. And uh, I remember thinking, oh, my, you know, how does this yeah. happen? You know, so it's a long way of saying, you know, things happen, and it's not right, and it's not good. But, you know, what should, why how much punishment is needed to deter right. what was really going on for her, her situation, what what was appropriate. Even though I was the victim and I wanted something done, there is a point where, you know, it's not the <laughs> infinite right. amount of time for having done something wrong. Yeah, that's the, the sense of retribution, you know. I mean, what is going to make a victim feel whole again? Is it just getting the the money back? Or is there something else, knowing that this person is sort of removed from society for for some period of time, does that really make you feel like you're getting justice? I think that's one of the reasons that I was a prosecutor and one of the reasons I do believe it's really important to have good prosecutors is that's where the discretion is, right? right, right. As defense lawyers, we're on the outside, we're beating the door down, we're trying to get the most just and best result for our client. But if you're a prosecutor, 
the ability to use your discretion, that first step in the decision-making process is really one of the most important things that you've got in the justice system. Because if you're making the right decisions there, then everybody is going to benefit from it, um, including society, because we don't have to waste resources fighting fights that don't need to be fought. So both sides need... Both sides. Um, need people. I'm, and... I'm all for equal opportunity in the justice system. Exactly, exactly. And more students of color going to law schools, being admitted to law schools. And it's happening, but it needs to be even more. And given jobs and opportunities, and um, I always know with my firm, I had all kinds of, well, we were all, at one point I had, I think there was five of us that were women, but then I hired some men too eventually. I remember. Um, And we had a little bit of everything. And and even, you know, one of the lawyers who worked for me is now, you know, district attorney a of DA, a county, in a yeah. county and um, African-American female leader. Um, That's right. In so many ways. And but you have to give somebody a chance, Yep. you yeah, know, and you I do. met her and I was like, God, I need, you know, she had a good job. But I was like, boy, I saw a superstore. I was like, get, look, come work for me. I remember that. And, and I know how much she really valued how you took her, you took her on and, and really mentored her through the process because that's the other thing that young lawyers need are people that are really going to invest in them and, and, and really going to show them, you know, how, how this practice operates. It's, it's, it's not rocket science, but at the same time, we have so much power in what we do to be able to be change agents that we really need to have young lawyers understand what... Uh, what we can do with the law and to actually do it. And that is a perfect segue to the tea that I selected for us today, because everybody knows with every episode of Law Talk with BJ, we sip on a cup of tea. It's so good. And it's um, lavender and chamomile, but the reason I chose it for you is it has cornflower in it, which is a blue flower that spiritually links to the idea of infinite potential and breaking through obstacles. And now I have chills. I was like, because I, I don't know, just to the guess, I don't always know where our conversation, these are not scripted conversations. I just had said to Jamila, who is a friend, by the way, you can tell, yeah. um, that, uh, you know, I want to talk about the guidelines, I want to talk about Manafort, and then we went in a direction that I wasn't even expecting, but fits this Exactly. Because there is infinite potential in our system and our constitution that people around the world don't get. That's right. And although we have criticisms and problems of it, I will fight for it every day. I think you'll fight for it every day. And breaking through for an individual the obstacles, whether they're their personal obstacles, that they did something wrong and there may be punishment, but how can you take that and make it where we don't see them in the system again? That's right. Remove the obstacle that has caused them to be a part of the system. Um, protecting victims as well. The same the same concept. So yeah. um, on that note, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much. Don't forget to uh, plug our Twitter accounts because oh, you know we're really right. good on Twitter. And your Twitter account is? LawGirlATL. Uh, she, and she is a prolific Twitterer. Yes. Um, I'm on at BJ Bernstein. But of course, I mainly just want you to listen to the podcast and spread it to your friends. We just had the one year anniversary and it's been a really good year. I love this podcast. And um, 
I am so happy to have you as the first guest on the second season. Well, exciting. Well, this tea is very good, and I and I'm going to tell people about it. And I hope you're going to give me a couple tea bags for the road. Absolutely. Thanks. Thank you. This podcast is not to be construed as legal advice. With any legal issue, you should reach out to a professional attorney that practices law in the state and area of law for which you need information or consultation. Law Talk with BJ does not establish an attorney-client relationship, which is only formed when you have hired an attorney and signed an engagement agreement or contract. It's Law Talk with BJ Music Theme, written and produced by Atlanta Audible. This podcast copyright 2018, BJ Bernstein Esquire.